Amen. Well, welcome once again on this beautiful Palm Sunday Sunday. It's a beautiful day out and looks like the Lord is going to bless us with another rainstorm coming up uh, perhaps later tonight through, through the next several days. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. As I mentioned in my email update on uh, this past Thursday, uh, the tech team and the worship team kind of been uh, chatting back and forth starting last Sunday throughout the week of just us being cautious too in our contact with one another and number of people in the building. And so we have chosen to trim the service down just a little bit. Uh, we want to make it as meaningful as possible and lead you in worship and, and not short anything, but also just trying to uh, kind of uh, reduce the amount of time we spend together too. And so it's hard. We all love each other and want to be together, but just trying to be wise in how we uh, manage our time. When I was a little kid, I was, uh, well, as you know, I was born in 1958. And in uh, the early 60s, uh, sometime after 1963, my parents had bought a Ford Galaxy 500. It was, uh, I look back now and I think it was, it was kind of a classic car of its time. It had a, you know, nice size V8, power steering, power brakes, no air conditioning, of course. That was still pretty new technology back then. But for the day, it was a pretty, pretty nice car. And one of the features that it had in it was a padded dash for safety. You know, in case you hit something, you'd bounce off the dash. I guess that was a thinking back then. Uh, but it also had a clock right in the middle of the dash, an electric clock. And I, as a little kid, whenever we would go on very long trips, and especially on the way home, I would often be sitting, my dad would be driving most of the time, I'd be sitting in the middle, my grandfather, we took my grandparents on my dad's side on trips quite a bit, and my grandpa would be in the front, and uh, behind me would be my sister and my mom and my grandmother, and this is before my brother came along in 1967. But I had a habit of, I don't know if I'd call it impatience, or I just wanted to know when we were going to get there, particularly when are we going to get home. And I would ask my dad, and after a while, he kind of wised up. Of course, this is before GPS and cell phones. Now you can plug in where you're going. It'll tell you not only how to get there, but how long it'll take to get there down to the minute. Well, my dad was the original GPS, and he learned with a little kid who could be impatient to pad the numbers a little bit. And so if it was an hour to get home, he'd tell me it'd be an hour and 15 minutes. And so here's what I would do, literally. I would rest my head on that padded dash and I would count the number of revolutions on that clock 60 times, 75, whatever it took to get home. And of course, as soon as I got to whatever that number was my dad gave me, I'd pop up, are we home or wherever we were going? With a big dent right across my forehead. Probably be there for who knows how long. There's something about going home that is significant. And as you think about that, you think about, I want you to imagine significant times in your life when you have gone home. It could be after your first year of college or after your graduation of college and, and you go home and it, and yeah, it's home, but you know you're going to establish another home someday. It could be the sad news of someone passing and, and you make that trip home, however long it is, knowing that Inevitably, you knew this day was coming, a, a parent or a grandparent or someone who was quite ill had passed and you made that trip home. 
It may have been for a birthday or for a, uh, uh, for a, uh, you know, a, a graduation of some kind or a wedding or just any significant event. I want you to think about those significant times in your life when going home just had an extra special meeting. Maybe you were in the service during one of the conflicts in our nation's history or just simply as a choice and and after that basic training or after you were uh, released from that uh, commitment, you, you went home. Well, in a very similar way, Palm Sunday is Jesus' final ride home. Now, he's known this ever since, you know, he and the Father and the Holy Spirit realized and, and knew what would need to happen to bring people salvation through faith in Christ. But as a human born of a virgin, experiencing all of the same things that we experience in this life and yet without sin, Jesus also knew that someday he would go back home, back to his heavenly home. He had left his throne room, if you will, took on the form of humanity. But Palm Sunday marks the beginning of his final ride home, in a sense. I want you to think about that as we go through this passage. All four Gospels have accounts of Palm Sunday. They each approach it. There's some similarities and there's some differences. Only the book of John specifically mentions palm leaves, as you heard Randy read earlier. And as I mentioned at the beginning, palm branches were a sign of victory. They were actually a sign of nationalism for the Jewish people. And you would find those on their coinage. You'd also find it on their synagogues as a way of remembering victory in the Lord. Now we look back as Christians, we realize that was such a bigger picture of what they imagine. That the Jew and the Gentile come together through faith in Christ and victory is ours through all that Jesus has done, which we will celebrate next Sunday. Think about that. Let me pray with you and then let's look at Matthew chapter 21. Lord, we thank you for the time you've blessed us with this morning. Thank you for the time of worship and in singing and worship and hearing your word read now as we study it together. Lord, would you just teach us as only you can. Thank you, Lord, again for the power of technology and the way that we can use it here in the church to connect with one another. Even though we're far apart in our homes and in different places, thank you that we can connect with one another and be together. We long for the day when we will be able to see each other face to face and shake hands and hug and enjoy the fellowship that we admit we probably took for granted at times. And now that that's limited, it's just so hard. But we thank you, Lord, that you're a God of victory, a God of sovereignty who is over this entire situation. We don't pretend to understand all of it. We just know that it is the way it is. So we ask you for grace day by day to be patient, uh, to wait upon you for that day when we can gather again. But Lord, we also know that although this is our earthly home as citizens of this nation and citizens of this world, that for the believer in Christ, our ultimate home is still coming. Lord, help us to watch those signs of the time that you talk about. Perhaps this is one of those. We don't know when your return will be. We don't have a clock on the dash to look at, so to speak, but we have your word that gives us general ideas. And so help us to be not only looking to that day when we take that final ride home to be with you forever, but Lord, help us to be mindful of those all around us who don't have that hope, especially at a time like this. And may the living hope that we have in Christ just just permeate our lives 
And may we be prepared to give an answer for the reason that we have hope. And it's because of Jesus, the one who has gained victory over sin and death and gives us eternal life, not someday, but now. And when we ride home someday with you, Lord, we know we will experience a life that we can only imagine. And so help us to hang on to that hope, that anchor for the soul during these difficult times. And we long for the day and look forward to the day when we can gather again, but also that ride home someday. We give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to suggest four things that we can learn from this. And as I thought about Palm Sunday, I thought, you know, you, many of you have heard a, a lot of Palm Sunday messages over the years. Uh, not only for me, but previous pastors or at previous churches. And, you know, you're, you're kind of looking for that new angle, so to speak. I, can't, I certainly can't make up new truth, but I, I hope that uh, I hope this will give you maybe a, a fresh perspective on Palm Sunday this morning. That's my hope and prayer. So as we think about Jesus taking that final ride home, there are several things I'd like to mention I think were in a sense on his mind as he came into Jerusalem on that, on that colt. The first thing is that I believe he looked toward the cross. He looked toward the cross. In verse 1 it says, as they approached Jerusalem and they were coming from Jericho, about 10 miles to the east, and came around through around Bethany. And then Bethphage was a small village, just about a half mile to a mile from Bethany. Came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples. As he was coming into that place, as he was nearing Jerusalem, a place that he didn't spend a lot of time in. We see him there kind of coming and going, but he also knew that he wanted to get out to the northern part of the, of the uh, country, up around the Sea of Galilee. And that was kind of his headquarters, if you will, in Capernaum. And we saw a lot of that in the Gospel of Mark that we studied several years ago. But Jerusalem was normally a town of about forty to 50,000 people. But with all of the pilgrims coming at Passover. And don't you find it interesting that Jesus was there at Passover leading up to the Day of Atonement, which was when? Friday. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the main city of Israel. But at this time, scholars believe it had swollen to nearly two, th- two million people. Just a horde of people. Now the Romans, of course, were very concerned because they thought, wow, two million people, that outnumbers our soldiers a lot. And so they were always mindful of any potential problem or any troublemakers. In Exodus chapter 12, we see the Passover. If you want to read that on your own, that's where we see that, that the, the looking back, that celebration of where the angel of the Lord passed over the homes. And why did the angel pass over? Because they had blood on their doorposts. So the significance of blood is established early on in the Old Testament. And we see the blood of Jesus being shed for our sins, to cover our sins. In fact, let me remind you, next Sunday, we're actually going to celebrate communion together. So... You might have a, a bread you want to use or, or cracker. Those of you who like to bake, it would be kind of a neat time to maybe make a special loaf of bread to use as your communion celebration and then obviously having some grape juice with that. Bethphage was just a small village. It was close to Bethany. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives was about 
a little over 2,600 feet. And from there, you could overlook the temple area, which a lot of what took place we see when Jesus was in Jerusalem took place around the temple, that main place of worship, about a mile or two from Jerusalem at this point. Jesus understood the significance of coming into Jerusalem, knowing that that Day of Atonement would be on Friday, and that he would be that once and for all atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John chapter 2, verse 2, said that this way, as the Apostle John writes to his followers. He says, he is, speaking of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Atonement means to pay for something. We owe God, in a sense, for our sins, for all of sin. And fall short of the glory of God. They talk about the pandemic of coronavirus, COVID-19. But there's been a pandemic since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It's called sin. Everybody's infected with it. No one, there is no solution to it but one. And the only vaccine, if you want to use those terms, is Jesus and what he did. That atoning sacrifice. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus not only was looking towards the cross that he would bear, but earlier in the book of Matthew, we see him challenging his followers to bear their own crosses. And that applies to us too. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, he says it this way, If anyone loves their father or mother more than me, they are not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow, those are strong words. What is Jesus talking about here? That we don't love our parents or love our families? No, not at all. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. Sacrificial love towards other people as we would care for ourselves. It's a matter of priorities. Who's number one? What's number one in our life? And Jesus is saying, he needs to be. He needs to be. Whoever does not take up their cross, in other words, die to self, his will is more important than our will. And follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. In other words, you know, the the word we get from the world in a sense is self-fulfillment. Do your own thing, whatever you're feeling. And Jesus is saying that's not going to ultimately fulfill you. It will leave you empty, asking questions. What is life about? If we want real life, we find real life in Jesus. So we set aside our self-will. We set aside the, the priorities that we may have in a sense, and we make God our first priority, then he organizes our lives around that. And he says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Do we want fulfillment this Palm Sunday and throughout the rest of this year? Make Jesus number one. Make Jesus number one. He made us his goal as he went to that cross. He had you and me and the world on his mind. He knew he was heading to the cross as he rode towards home to bear that cross literally for the sins of the world, that atoning once and for all sacrifice that the book of Hebrews talks about so that you and I could be free, that we could have eternal life, that we could have the life that we want so dearly and yet look for in so many other places at times other than God. He says, find your life in me. And I will help you prioritize everything else. And you will be fulfilled. Jesus looked toward the cross as he was coming into that city. All of us leave a 
an epitaph. All of us leave a, a memory. And as I have shared before, I have done more funerals than I can possibly remember. Just, just too many. But everyone is always marked by remembering the person. They were this, they were that. And, and, and we want to do that. We want to honor that person as we remember them, as they, as they uh, have left this life. A man by the name of Ludolf van Schulen, a Dutch mathematician, was the first to calculate pi, P-I. Remember that back in high school or junior high maybe or college as you studied math? And at the age of 70 when he died, he had it inscribed on his tombstone. Now, pi is more than 3.14. It's a ton of numbers after that that I'm not going to take the time to read, but you can look that up on your own. But that was actually on his tombstone. Martin Luther King had the following epitaph put on his tombstone. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founders of our nation, on his tombstone, or he actually didn't have it on his tombstone, but he, he wrote it in a journal as a possible thing to put in his tombstone. And being somewhat of a comic himself, he said, The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Not sure I'd really want that on my, uh, on my tombstone. But despite his many achievements, he did want to, first of all, be known as a printer. I don't know for sure what's on his tombstone, but again, you can Google it and let me know later. Thomas Jefferson, on his tombstone, says, Author of the Declaration of Independence and of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and the Father of the University of Virginia. So when we think of Jesus as he went to that cross, how do we remember him? Savior, Lord, King of Kings. It would go, a tombstone wouldn't be big enough to write all of the things that we think of. But I think he also wants us to think about ourselves as we are, in a sense, riding towards home. How do we want to be remembered? What will people think of when they think of us? I trust they will think of Jesus as they look at our lives. Well, secondly, I see in verses 2 through 3 and 6 through 7 that he worked through his disciples. He worked through his disciples. He says to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Now, Matthew's the only one that mentions two animals, a donkey and the colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, we don't know if Jesus prearranged this. We don't know if he uh, just sovereignly prepared the person to hear from the disciples, but the point being, a donkey and her colt came along for Jesus to ride on. And then we skip over the verses 6 through 7. The disciples went and and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. The disciples, in a sense, helped fulfill Zechariah 9.9 that I read earlier. And you see that as part of the passage here. We'll get to that in just a little bit. I like the way the common English version says about Jesus instructing the disciples on what to do. It says, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He gave them a task. And their task was to go to this place, 
get the two animals and bring them back. Okay, I can do that. But they were fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. They may not have realized that at the time. But God was using them in a significant way. Now, scholars talk about the importance of Jesus riding on a donkey. We will see that coming here as we continue to go through this passage. A donkey was a traditional mount for kings and rulers in the ancient Near East. We tend to think of horses and war horses and big strong animals. But in the ancient Near East, a donkey was actually more of the traditional mount. The act of riding, secondly, the act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey near the time of Passover invoked a central idea of the Messiah coming, the Messiah, and what they expected was someone coming into town, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and being that kingly person, which again, that donkey, that colt would have fulfilled that. And then lastly, in light of the frequent Old Testament associations of horses with war and human, be- and, and human war, the donkey or the colt presented an image, image more of peaceful humility. Jesus came to atone for our sins so that we might have peace with him, peace in ourselves, and also peace with others. So a lot of imagery going on here as he rode that donkey. When Jesus called his original disciples, and we see them listed in different places in the Gospels, in the case of Matthew, you'd find those in Matthew chapter 12, he knew that they would struggle at times to follow him and to obey his command. Now the two that he sent this time, pretty simple task. Go get the animals, bring them back. Got it, I'll do it. But we also see in the Gospels, the failure of the disciples at times, struggling to fulfill what Jesus asked of them. You know what? When he called you and he called me somehow in his sovereign call, using our free will and bringing things together for us to trust in Jesus, he knew that about you and me too. He knew that we would do well at times and he knew we would struggle at times. But he still chooses to work in and through us to accomplish his purposes. Maybe Paul had that in mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, as he writes to that body in Corinth, saying, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And he's talking here about how in the body of Christ, locally, globally, God has appointed gifts to function as one, to, to follow the Lord, to fulfill his commands, so that we might continue to spread the gospel. And yet at times we struggle to do that, don't we? Well, Paul did too. And Paul admitted that he had his own weaknesses. We don't know exactly what his thorn in the flesh was that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says it this way. But he said to me, speaking of the Lord, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I take delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel weak. Sometimes I feel like I've got my game together, so to speak, when it comes to serving the Lord. And there's other times when I think, man, I, I, I'm just really struggling. But I am comforted by the fact that God has chosen to work through his people in spite of ourselves. 
And he knows that in our weaknesses, that's when we often depend on him the most. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes through the best. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, what a wonderful verse that reminds us of how God looks at us. For we are God's handiwork, art project literally, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When he looked at your life, when he looked at my life, when he looked at the church as a whole, he still chose to work through us because it brings him the most glory. Because he wants to demonstrate to the world who he is. And the people that he has chosen for his own. And how he sends us out to share that with others. So that they too might believe. There's a prayer that I ran across. That is attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ. I'm not sure how long ago this was. But it's quoted in a book simply called. You are the needle. And I am the thread by Pamela Joy Anderson. And it says it this way. O God, I am Mustafa, the tailor. And I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. O God, you are the needle and I am the thread. I'm attached to you and I follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you whenever you lead me. For I am really only Mustafa the tailor. And I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. What a great way to think about our life in Christ. Jesus will lead us. He will guide us. He will empower us. And like the thread following the needle, we can rest in him knowing that he's chosen to use us to, to in a sense, sow his handiwork in this world through people just like us who at times feel awfully weak and wonder, why is he working through me? And yet that is his choice because as he looked toward the cross so many years ago, he chose to continue to work through his disciples and he continues to make that choice today. Well, we also see in verses 4 and 5 and 8 through 9 that he received the praise of people. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus at times receiving the praise, but also at times telling people, go tell the priests, go to your home. In other words, he, 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 it's not that he was denying who he was, it was more the timing of it. But as he's coming into Jerusalem, he is declaring without a doubt who he is. He is the Messiah, and he was prepared to receive the praise of the people. And we see that in verses 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now this was speaking of the, 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 um, the donkey and the colt. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now there are some that wonder, you know, why two animals? Which one did he ride on? And scholars are varied on you know, did he ride on both a little bit? Did he ride just on the colt and the mother led so the colt would be more comfortable? We don't really know for sure, but there are different theories of, of what he did. We see that they put cloaks on the donkey, and that was a sign of respect. They spread them on the ground. 
So in verses 4 and 5, we see him fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. In verses 8 and 9, we read this. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground as a sign of respect. They would have done that with any kind of kingly ruler. While others cut branches, palm branches, a sign of victory, from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna. It means victory, Hosanna, victory to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, victory in the highest heaven. The people were excited. They saw something in this person that was different. Now, a lot of these million plus people that were there were from Galilee where he spent a lot of his time. They saw the miracles. They, saw, they heard the teaching. They knew a lot more about him in a sense than a lot of the people around Jerusalem. Therefore, that's where some of the question comes from in the, in the Gospels. Who is this guy? Well, he's the Messiah. They've, we've been talking about him. Where have you guys been, so to speak? And so they're excited and he's receiving that praise. The New Living Translation says it this way, very appropriately. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and rightly so. Yes, he was, ex- he, he was modeling humility by riding on that colt uh, as the Messiah, that humble person, but he was receiving that praise, and rightly so, because he was the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the one that would bring salvation to the world. Now, when we think about that, scholars, again, weigh in on all that was happening there. And let me just talk for a moment about what they, what would have been happening. The, the pilgrims were chanting psalms of ascent, ascending to Jerusalem, because it was up in elevation. Psalms 113 through 118. You can maybe read through those later and see some of the wording that would have been going through their minds. I've mentioned the word Hosanna several times. It, it literally means save now or victory. This was common. This was a common expression of praise to God or as a greeting to one another. The, the phrase son of David, King David was considered to be the model king of Israel. And we know that Jesus was from his lineage. So that, that, that fulfillment of the Messiah coming from the line of David is being seen here. And then finally you see that phrase, blessed is he. It comes from Psalm 118, but it serves as a tribute to the king of Israel. And Jesus was being recognized as that appropriately. Jesus knew all this. He knew that riding on that donkey would fulfill Zechariah 9.9. He knew it would attract attention. He knew that he would be in the center of the procession, as the New Living Translation says. He knew that there would be branches from the palm tree as that sign of victory. God saves. God gives victory. Hosanna. That sign of victory for the Jewish people, but also a victory for us. When we think about that, how do we sum that up? I think Tim Keller says it the best in one of his writings, Tim Keller, pastor and author and, and significant uh, leader in, in broader Christianity, he says, in order for us to worship, in order for us to truly worship God, our mind, our will, and our emotions have to be moved. Try to place yourself in, as a member of that crowd. And you've been waiting and praying, wondering which generation will see the Messiah. And suddenly, you're there with your family and your children and you're walking along and you maybe have heard about or maybe you saw Jesus or maybe you experienced one of His miracles. And you say, there He is. 
He's on that colt. Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled in front of us. I have a feeling we'd be moved to worship. Our emotions, our mind, our will would be engaged together saying, this is the guy. He's the one we've been waiting for. Well, my friends, he's the one that all of us have been waiting for. He is the Savior of the world, that atoning sacrifice who on that final ride was looking towards the cross. He chose to work through his disciples and still works through them today. He was receiving the praise of people and he was also, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he declared his true identity in verses 10 through 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Oh, we know there's so much more that could be said. And we know that throughout the Gospels and and the teaching of the New Testament that is just borne out more and more who Jesus is. The one who brought salvation to earth. Jesus had not spent a lot of time in Jerusalem up to this point. He had been there, but he had come and gone a little bit more. But the declaration of the crowd of recognizing him as a Messiah was critical to what was happening. He fulfilled what Moses declared would happen Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15, that that prophet would come into town. He would be that one, that Messiah. Jesus was and is the Messiah, the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And just as Matthew, or just as Matthew records in chapter 16, when the disciples were asked, Who do people say that I am? Jesus answered this way. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? That's a question for every person on earth to answer. Who is Jesus Christ? Simon Peter, on behalf of the group, answered, You are the Messiah, the Christos, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. That's the message that Jesus wanted to make very clear on that Palm Sunday as he was riding home. He wasn't just some itinerant preacher from Nazareth, just some guy who came on the scene and Performed some miracles, nobody seemed to quite know how, but you know, who is this guy? No, he was so much more. He was God himself in human form. Philippians chapter 2 says he was fully God and fully man. And he wanted to make sure that as he came into that town on his ride home, back to his heavenly home, that everyone recognized that. Because he was in the center of that procession. And he was declaring, I am the Messiah. I provided some questions again this week for you to think about as you sit with family and friends, perhaps right now around your television or computer, whatever form you're watching this on. And the question for us to think about is how is Jesus asking you to bear, you, bear your cross on this Palm Sunday? Maybe he's been tapping on your heart this morning saying, hey, you got to get your priorities straight. And here's why. Because I have a life for you that I want to bless you with. But unless I'm on the throne of your life, 
not going to happen the way I want it to happen. That's what it means to bear the cross. It means to make him number one. And so maybe Jesus is asking you to make some, some decisions this morning about where he is in your life. In what ways does the Lord want to work through you to grow his kingdom? Until we are with the Lord face to face, he continues to want to work through us. And he'll lead us into what that looks like as we trust him, as we bear that cross. Why is praise important to spiritual growth? Why is it important for us to remember who is this guy? Why is it important? Think about that. And then number four, as we are on our personal ride home, who has the Lord put into your personal ride that needs to know Jesus? There are people that as you are in a sense riding home, that are riding next to you that may or may not know Jesus. What a time in the history of our nation to be able to share with them the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I trust that God is burdening our hearts for those that we know. We may not be able to be around them right now, but we can certainly reach out by phone, by text, whatever means necessary, certainly through prayer, and asking God to prepare them to receive and answer the question, who do people say that I am? There's a lot of people wondering about life right now. Wondering about God and, and what role He plays or doesn't play in what we're experiencing. Let's help them answer that question by making it very clear who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for them.